0: Hello, my name is Nico Fuentes and I will be having a conversation with Oni Lem for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is November 25th, 2019 and this is being recorded in the Puck Building in Soho. Hi. Hey. How's it going? It's going good. Um, I, like, ran out of my house, like, in the middle of dyeing my hair of, oh shit, I, like, woke up late, um, yeah, and I was just, like, kind of running around trying to get everything together, but, yeah, it's cute. How are you? I'm doing great. How has your week been? Um, better than the weeks before it. It's been hectic, but, um, yeah, just, like, gig chasing, um got like less hours at my job so Mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah winter's winter's always like that time kind of where like I think regardless of what job I'm in things kind of like thin out it's like am I going to am I going to make it through the winter (laughs) yeah I guess everybody it's that some kind of way um yeah. Uh damn, I don't I don't know where exactly we should start. Well what jobs are you holding down right now? Uh, I'm working in uh, a gallery in the mm. East Village, uh, performance space New York, which is the new uh, renovated um, PS one hundred twenty two which now holds like a complex of a bunch of other organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I kind of take side gigs wherever I can, um, doing like art fabrication and, um, I'm like helping a friend clean out her studio right now who like moved out of town. Mm-hmm. Just kind of whatever comes along. Um, it's been about a year of that since like, uh, basically since fosta happened and Backpage got shut down and things like that um before that I I had been doing sex work full-time like all of my adult life and a little bit before that so um yeah it's it's weird I think that like both of those had their like feast and famine moments but the ways that they happen are different like working working an hourly job um You kind of, like, you know when you're going to get paid, so even if you're not booked for as many hours, you know you're at least going to get a check at a certain point, but often it's, like, not really enough for what you need, um, whereas with sex work, you really have no idea most of the time when you're going to get paid, (laughs) but when you do, it's usually, like, pretty good, depending on where you're at in that world and what you do and, and all of that, um. But yeah, honestly I'm, I'm working really hard on getting back into sex work at this point because um, a lot of things came with the conditional stability of like normsy life that actually ended up making my day-to-day existence a lot more chaotic and miserable and I don't think that's really an exceptional thing. I think that's actually, like, more the rule than anything. But we're kind of taught not to realize how close we are to, like, teetering on the edge of chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's been a weird year in that way. Because in, what has it been like? 2019 now yeah i guess like uh a little i want to say a little over two years ago now i got stung by the police in la um i had like just gotten my face done for the first time i had, like sued medicaid three times to get that covered and got that done in august of 2020 20- 17 at the end of August, and like literally lost my housing hours before I went to the hospital. So, like, moved my shit out of my place, um, had put some of it in storage, uh, took the rest to the house of this girl that I was dating at the time. Um, and we had agreed that I was going to recover there. So, that happened. Um, where was the place that you were living that you were moving out of uh the old Scumqua, which was uh on broadway in in bushwick Mm -hmm. broadway Um, and what uh like jefferson Mm -hmm. uh street not avenue Mm -hmm. i think Mm i always forget my clients would always get mixed up too and go to the wrong place Mm -hmm. but um yeah, it was, that was a weird situation too because it was like kind of started by like, it was like a dyke house mm-hmm. basically. It was like a, like a punk dyke house and then uh, as tends to happen, it like gradually got taken over by like more and more gay boys and then the gay boys brought in their rich friends who could hold down a lease and mm. so then by the time I got there, I was like stoked. I was like, oh my god, like I'm gonna go live in Scumquat. This is amazing. Yeah. And then I got there and it was like not necessarily that. but Where um, had you heard about it? All around. I think back... Oh, God. I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Right when I first got to New York, there was like... Which uh, was when? Uh, 2011. Mm-hmm. April 20th of 2011. Mm-hmm. I got here on 420. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um... Shit, I can't remember the name of it now. There, There was like a a queer thing like not a festival but like a series of events that were like a lot around like activists and organizing stuff and different things um but scumquat was hosting a lot of that so i heard about it through that and then I knew or met a few people that lived at scumquat at various points. I had friends who had lived there. So I had just kind of intermittently heard about it throughout my time in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, then like, I don't know, it was a, it was a chaotic ride in a way because like I've been thinking about this more and more lately, like my entire journey in New York has been a consistent spiral in like one way or another. Um, I came here knowing that I could not afford to both relocate and get a place. Mm -hmm. It was very either or. So I threw all my shit into storage in L.A., came out here with like two bags and um, was crashing in Prospect Park and other nearby places for like two months or so. Um, I got a job within, like, a week or two of coming here canvassing for a working families party. Okay. Um, I'm a terrible salesperson. So I was really bad at that job. I did not like convincing people to give money to an organization. Also, because, like, I just, I can't, I feel like I can sell things that I believe but mm. I don't believe in most things. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I was like going door to door doing that, but then, uh, had saved up a, a bit of money, not much. I probably had like 600 something dollars and every place obviously wants first last security. Um, and so then one night I went home from this party called pussy faggot that this, uh, this guy named Earl Dax used to put together back when everybody was still doing like the Williamsburg hipster party moment where was this um it took place at a bunch of different venues it uh was often at Public Assembly which was the old Galapagos art space on North 6 uh-huh. in Williamsburg which has now been like a skate bar and a few other things it's uh-huh. just like constantly getting flipped over and over uh-huh. um but you're at pussy faggot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I it was at a different space that time and I went there um and yeah, it was cute. Uh Mickey Blanco was performing before. She was like that bitch, you know, She's doing like a like a spoken word thing over a beat. It was cute. But um I ended up going home with this faggot, and as we left the party, he was like, so, where are we going? I was like, I don't know, and he was like, well, where do you live? I was like, wherever, you know, and so we we ended up going back to his place, obviously, um, and smoked, like, this fucking, like, monster joint that I had brought from California, and I was, like, saving for just such an occasion, and, like, fucked all night, and then the next morning, he was like, well, you know, I don't want you to have to sleep outside you know you can crash here for a few days if you need to and like it was spring you know like so i was kind of fine but you know that was cute so i slept there for like a night or two and then it was the strangest thing he had a roommate i guess that he had been fighting with extensively and uh this person had locked the door to their room and he hadn't seen them for like Weeks, and then one day, a couple days after I got there, the door was open and the room was empty, and the person was gone. That apparently left a curse rolled up on paper in the freezer. But <laughs> <laughs> so you know, uh, the the gay witches are interesting. <laughs> you know, witches is- in quotation marks. But um, yeah. So. That happened, and then his other roommate slash best friend was like, I don't want to pay a rent increase. So, you know, moved out and went back to Connecticut with their parents. And then there was, like, one straight guy that lived there with nothing but a mattress and a bicycle in his room, as straight men do. And was like, I'm moving in with my girlfriend. So the apartment was literally empty, and he was like, I need anybody to move in here, please. Just, like, you can just pay, like, a month's rent. You don't need security deposit or anything. So I did, and had... um like, a room in an apartment in Bushwick off of the J train, which, like, none of the hipsters wanted to live in at the time. They're like, it's not off the L. It's too far, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, like, several waves of gentrification ago, a very much mostly black and brown neighborhood. We were, like, the only white kids on the block. Um, and I stayed there for, like, a year, and then – um met somebody when I was volunteering at uh the Mix Festival, the mm. year that it happened off of uh Bleaker. What year is that? Uh I wanna say still twenty eleven. Yeah, I think it was at the end of twenty eleven. Um It was while Occupy was happening, Mm. so, you know, Zuccotti was still full of people. A lot Mm -hmm. of the kids that were volunteering were also going and sleeping there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, they... uh, The Mix Festival had ended, but they had La Mama Galleria for, like, a week after the festival and had uh, curated a bunch of programming into the space. What was La Mama Galleria? I think it still exists, I want to say. It's uh, connected to La Mama, like the theater, but it's like a separate space, like Mm -hmm. a block or so, Mm -hmm. a few blocks away. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, just like white box gallery space. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a bunch of installations and things. And then uh, Bradford Nordine, who does Dirty Looks, um, curated a reading there called Dirty Talk. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the people that was... Uh, curated to read as part of that night was also living at Occupy and uh, working in the library that Patty Smith paid for and um, had started compiling people's poems from poetry readings that were going on out there um, and came and read some of their own work and then talked about the, you know, the Occupy poetry anthology as it was called at the time. Um, and you know urge people to submit poems so i had a poem that i had written uh in 2006 when i left new york the first time i tried to come out here my car broke down on the way it was a whole fucking fiasco i was supposed to go on exchange to hunter financial aid fell through blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. so you know life fell apart uh yet another time in the past. And I had written a poem on the way back to California. I like, uh, you know, capitalism sucks, man. And, you know, it felt like a very full circle thing. Mm-hmm. So I like, submitted that and he wrote me back and was like, oh, this is an amazing poem. Thank you so much. And like friended me on Facebook. And then we didn't talk for like a good three months or so. And then he randomly messaged me uh, and was like, you're gorgeous. We should hang out sometime. Uh, so we did uh and like started hooking up it was really cute and um we're like seeing each other for i think like two or three months uh at which point he started like kind of hinting that i should move in with him mind you the zuccotti had been raided by this point um a couple that he met um through the occupy library who came down there um you know, were were really into him and the work that he was doing. And so, um invited him to come and crash at their house to decompress for, you know, like a a few days to a week. Um, then he started, you know, doing their dishes and babysitting their kid and all of these things and, you know, made himself very useful. And so had been staying there now for a few weeks when we started hanging out. Um And then as we kept seeing each other, it was like, yeah, like you should move in here. They really like you. Mind you, I'm a relatively like not new escort, but I was just really learning the ropes of like actually doing it. I had been working as as a faggot in Los Angeles and Southern California. Um, The only other sex workers I knew at the time were cis women so they would give me advice on how to photograph myself or how to advertise that was absolutely ineffective i really didn't know what i was doing you know but we all have that face some of us never leave that face (laughs) but um i came to new york and you know met a lot of other like gay men working as escorts and they were like you need to be less fashion be way more butch act like trade in your pictures say that you're a dom top and you smell bad and you'll piss on people and blah blah blah, and then you'll get all the all the coins in the world so I did and it worked um but you know was still very new to that whole world like didn't have New York regulars yet had not really like set myself up in that way um and so again winter came and I you know I didn't have I didn't have the money I needed. I was like late on rent once. My roommates covered me. I paid them back. And then it was clear that I was like gonna be late on rent again the following month. And they were like, We can't we can't cover you again. Like you either need to like figure rent out or we need to find another roommate. Um and so I knowing that it was like way too soon to move in with this person, was like, Well, um, maybe you know and started talking with them about it of like you know what would that entail what would it look like and you know it was very clear from the beginning that like we're not boyfriends this is not a monogamous situation like if you want to do this like let's talk about what it could look like but i'm not sure you know and so the idea that they suggested was moving into uh moving into the basement of this brownstone in chelsea where the couple lived and helping them renovate the basement um in exchange for free rent and so i was like okay you know that sounds great it can be a collaboration we'll both have time and space to work on our art blah blah blah. talk to them see what they say and so he said he would and i you know over the next few weeks, like, how is it going? What's happening? He was like, yeah, you know, they seem kind of into it. We haven't like exactly talked out all the details yet, but I'm kind of like finessing the situation, blah, blah, blah. Um, And it came down to a point where like, I needed to either say that I am staying or going from my current apartment. And I was like, what, you know, do you think this is gonna work or what should I do? And he was like, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. Like, go ahead, tell them. So. I tell my roommates I'm moving out. Obviously, for a four hundred dollar room, they find someone immediately, um and I like booked a U-Haul and everything. And then the day of the move, I had put all of my stuff in a U-Haul, and he shows up to drive the U-Haul to Chelsea and tells me that we need to park it down the block and wait until night to move everything in. Because he actually has not talked about this with the couple at all, <laughs> so I'm furious. Of course, you know, like the whole thing is like falling apart. But I have nowhere else to go, so I went with him, and I told him, "Like, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sneak in here. I'm not gonna like hide my shit and pretend that I'm not here. Like, we can work this out and figure out what it is. But like, he wanted me to like put my shit in the cellar. It was ridiculous, but." A uh, very long story, somewhat shorter. Uh, the couple was really gracious about it. They didn't kick me out. We worked out a situation within the next few months where, you know, we would pay them, I think like 300 each, um, and help with household chores and remodeling and everything. Um, but within a month, um, he became really possessive and, uh, even though you know it was an explicitly open relationship, every time he found out that I had hooked up with someone else, he would then like target that person, come for them really ferociously, be really mean to them in public mm-hmm. spaces, yell at other friends of his who hung out with them. Um, I was doing a lot of nightlife stuff and like event things. At the time it was like creative directing a party and blah blah blah. Or, you know, I wasn't Which talking, party? a party? Creative director. <laughs> uh, it was called New Wilderness. Uh huh. Um, Where was that? All over the place. We we did some stuff at... Uh, also at Public Assembly. We did a few parties at Super Chief when it was on the Lower East Side. Um, before it was so readily apparent that they were total assholes and super uh, exploitative of sex workers. But... Um, yeah. It was cute. It was also like... Like, right when, like, the the queer rap scene, quote-unquote, was really, like, burgeoning. And so we, like, booked a lot of... We, like, booked a lot of those folks. Like, Mickey played our party, Cakes played. Um, this is around what time? Uh, like, 20... Like, end of 2011, beginning of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah it was it was cute but it was also a situation where like i would go out do this party you know throw the event whatever and then i would get home at you know whatever time you get home after closing a party and he's sitting awake in the dark waiting for me Mm -hmm. like you know did you fuck him or not you know shit like that Mm -hmm. so you know but was stuck in the situation essentially had nowhere to go um yeah there's a lot of like a lot of substance shit going on. This person was basically, like, blackout drunk, like, most days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sexually assaulted me on at least one occasion, more ambiguously so on others. Mm -hmm. Um, And so within a month or two, I was, like, avidly trying to find ways out of the situation. But there weren't any. Because just, like, when I found my first place, I never had enough money to do first, last, and security. Much less to be on a lease. Um, So yeah it was it was weird i think like a lot of the illusions i had about what new york would be for me and like not being as messy as i had been as like a poor queer person or whatever the fuck like i i thought like oh i'll come here and like not fuck up my life this time and then it became immediately clear like once that relationship was what it was that like I either had to shut the fuck up about what was going on and pretend everything was fine and cute and that I'm, oh, I'm living in this brownstone in Chelsea and we have chickens, you know, or speak about it and make people choose whose side they were going to be on, which I had not done before. I hadn't, I mean, I'd been in multiple of these situations, but I hadn't have it be like a scene politicking thing that was social in that way. Right so you know being pretty naive about that i i would talk a lot of shit (laughs) and uh where did you talk a lot of shit Two friends of mine Mm -hmm. just people that i knew people that i was around Mm -hmm. like anybody that i was hanging out with i kind of knew the situation after Mm -hmm. a certain point i mean Mm -hmm. there was uh there was an incident where we were coming home from a party at the old spectrum and uh he was drunk as fuck and um just acting really foolishly, like kind of low key, like accosting strangers on the street, and I stopped him from doing that. He got madder at me, and then like uh, tried to fight these two construction workers, mm. and like was like screaming the N word at them. Yeah. Um, later, went on to get a full ride at Pratt, though, as an anti-racist activist. So you know, mm. three cheers for academia. <laughs> but um, when you say the old spectrum, what do you? Uh, The one on Montrose. Oh, okay. Yeah, that uh, Gage and Nicholas Forum started Uh Uh and later lived in before they moved to the Dream House on Wyckoff. Oh, okay. Um, Were you at that party, at that space a lot? Initially, yeah. Um, Gage was was? one of the people that I met really early on in New York. We, like, met at Reese's one day and then like went and fucked and whatever and like the house that uh they were staying in like with uh posy and uh granny and all of them but um yeah like i would yeah i would go a lot but then also the person that i was seeing um and gage had known each other from from san francisco nice. back in the day so you know it was it was a different connection when when we finally split I stopped going to the spectrum completely for a while like over mm-hmm. a year and also did not go to the dream house when it opened up for probably at least another year or yeah. so it was it was really intense but I mean that was ultimately what happened was there was this terrible relationship to this day the worst that i have been in um and when i I broke up with this person cut them off they actively stalked me showed up where i was staying um which was in a studio that i wasn't even supposed to be staying in Mm. i absolutely was not it was like a studio share i was not supposed to be living there but i had nowhere else so i would crash there whenever i wasn't fucking someone off of grinder for another place to sleep Mm -hmm. um and yeah it was um It was really shitty, but they stalked me. It got to the point where I told, um, you know, friends of mine from nightlife or acquaintances or whatever, like, do not invite me to places that you are inviting this person. Um, So I just stopped getting invited places because that's really how it works. You know, Mm. if you, if you draw that line, Uh regardless of whether it's abuse or I don't like this person or they make me uncomfortable or, you know, they're friends with someone else, like whatever the fucking thing is, like if you set that boundary, a lot of the time, the like community fail that happens is that you just don't get brought into the spaces that you draw those boundaries with or around those people. So I, yeah, I, I stopped I stopped going out completely for a while. The party that I was doing kind of like closed out. We stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. Not because of that. It was, you know, people were moving on to other places. They left town, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, so I cut him off. We got back together briefly, more so because I figured it would be easier to come to some kind of peace with this person than keep running from them when it had gotten to the point where they were literally showing up at random places. I would go where they really knew no one. They would come to like shows that my friends were throwing that they had not been invited to and show up drunk and start feeling me up. So it was like, I figured at a certain point it would be easier to work with them than keep trying to fight it. So we got back together briefly for like a winter and then broke up again. Um, at which point I just completely deaded communication and they continued emailing, texting, calling, yeah. whatever, whatever. Um, but yeah, I was, I was crashing in this like low key studio space for a while. And then that building was going to get bulldozed. Where um, was it? It was the old mix studio. I, I had been volunteering for mix back when, uh-huh. uh, Steven Kent was still the executive director uh-huh. and, uh, yeah you know i i had keys i had access to the space uh-huh. and it was on uh oh god uh Major. was anybody Major. else uh crashing there no god no no it was basically their storage space when the festival um when the festival wasn't happening And so most of the year, there weren't really a ton of people moving through the space, except when someone needed to come and pick things up. And because I was there so often, quote unquote, I was able to facilitate people getting in and out of the space. So it was useful. And By the end of the time I was there, I think pretty much everybody knew that I was crashing, but because I was really inconspicuous about it, people let it it fly, kind of. Um, But... Yeah, I don't know. I've gotten really good at that in a way. Mm. It's kind of like being a rat or Mm. something. You learn to like hide in the crevices of places in very inconspicuous ways that no one would notice and like make yourself unobtrusive. And yeah, I don't know. (laughs) While also speaking out, as you were saying in this speaking out. Mm -hmm. By that point, I really had kind of given up. Well, for the most part, like, because I went there from. The brownstone in Chelsea. Right. I, I left having no place to go, Absolutely. really. I subletted my old apartment in Bushwick for like a month while a roommate was traveling and then went to the next studio because mm-hmm. I just like there was nowhere else to go. Um, but yeah, I think at that point I had told everyone what was happening, they knew the situation and continued to invite him places because he had just had multiple books published um he fundraised to publish the occupy wall street poetry anthology right um yeah and then had another book published uh under publisher studio yeah it was like was kind of local famous in this way and was booking a lot of readings and so we're like oh yeah you know let me get booked with this person let me not talk shit so um Yeah, it was like... And then, you know, got the full ride to Pratt and was like going to grad school for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So after you were in the the mixed studio... Yeah, the building building Uh was going to get bulldozed. It eventually did. I went to California for a month, (sighs) uh, did a bunch of porn, uh, did, you know, turn a bunch of tricks and got enough money to get my own small studio when I came back. (sighs) Had that... Um, actually got really, really successful at, like, hoeing for a minute. Like, I uh-huh. had, like, a good four or five regulars. All of my bills were paid on time, if not in advance. Um, What and time was this? This was 2014. Uh, mm. Like, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also losing my fucking mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I... Had always swung femme, you know, mm. in general, was a very femme faggot, uh, yeah. you, know, and, you know, all the typical bullshit, as a child, I always wanted to wear <laughs> girls clothes, you know, like all the things, but like, had not codified that as transness. By the time I was 17, I had like a laundry list of plastic surgery that I wanted to get, which was basically like every surgery that the girls get except for breast implants. But I was like, oh, this isn't like a gender thing. I just want to be, you know, hot or whatever. Um, which is still the case, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so like I had written that off as something that would be impossible generally, um, just cause I never, I never had the money, you know, it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars to get all of these surgeries and they were absolutely not covered by any insurance at the time. And so I, yeah, I, when I was really young, I just kind of gave up and, like, did the the scruffy gay moment. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to be that twink that, like, grows a beard. But um, did that several times, actually. And, yeah, had come to some sort of peace with it. You know, it made me money, so I thought I could do it. Um, but also after the breakup, I, I think I, I got, or not, I I got really serious about what, um, my, you know, activist praxis or whatever the fuck looked like in the world, because having lived with this person that, like, I had heard used racist hate speech, that I had heard used transphobic language, even though they, like, even though both of us ended up being trainees in the long run, (laughs) you know, surprise, surprise. But, um, yeah, it was... It was a moment where i really had to look at what i was about and what i was actually doing in the world yeah it's like you know like i i literally like watched this person try to instigate violence on people of color and continue to live with them because like oh i don't want to be homeless you know which is like a legit excuse i guess but like where where is your commitment actually like mm-hmm. where do you draw the line at like i'm just not going to accept this or be complicit in any way because even just by the fact of my staying, not to like victim blame or whatever, but like by the fact of my staying, people assumed it was not as bad as it was. They thought that we were just having gay drama and that I was being, you know, melodramatic about it or whatever. And so when, you know, when we broke up, a lot of people were disinclined to give much weight to what had happened. Um, But yeah, once, once I was out of the situation, I really, like, I just kind of dove into, like, whatever efforts I could find that were going on in the city at that moment and tried to find, like, what what place can I actually have in this, like, where am I useful in some way or another? And, like, what, yeah, like, what connection do I actually have to What's going on right now? Um, And so I was like, I was working with NITAG for a minute, which is like a New York transgender advocacy group through, uh, it's operated through Housing Works. Yeah. Um, What year was this? This was still like 2013 through 2015, probably. Um, I was working, yeah, I was working with them. uh, What was happening at NITAG at the time? They were trying to get their kind of, like, organizational structure underway. They hadn't um, gotten their nonprofit status yet. They didn't really have much of a functional website. They were trying to figure out, you know, who's going to be the secretary and the treasurer, blah, blah, blah. So I, I helped them get their website up and went to a few actions that they were doing I went to a conference with them on, like, HIV stuff. One time. You know, it was just, like, whatever was going on, we would go up to Albany and uh, lobby legislators to, like, pass agenda and do, you know, yeah, like, yeah. things like that. This was before it had actually passed. Yeah. Um, who, but Who was there? Uh, Kiara. Kiara was kind of running things. I think at the time, uh, Tanya had stepped out briefly. Oh, yeah. um, Tanya... God. uh i'm forgetting her last name right now um Did i say walker but yeah she she's actually um if you watch the documentary mirror mirror um she's in that with like a very young hector extravaganza mm-hmm. um and cosmetically the, the documentary is about but um yeah she she stepped down briefly i kind of came into it um after the the incident at Monster with Ivana Black, I guess there was a a trans woman who was using the restroom there, and a dyke opened the door and was like, "There's a man in the restroom," and security like assaulted her and kicked her out. Wow. So what? what this was what year? Uh this was I think also in twenty thirteen, maybe twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. So there was there was some organizing around that, which ultimately just got co opted and fucking nullified by AVP fucking useless. But <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I've been through a few things with AVP now too. They, they strategically reach out to people, ask them what they need. Most of the time don't follow up with anything, but then tell those people not to talk to anyone else because they're going to handle it. So I've seen multiple incidents of violence actually get disappeared because AVP decided to quote unquote handle it. Um, But that's neither here nor there until it is <laughs> um, I yeah I was working with NITAG, uh really briefly did some stuff with um, Equality for Flatbush and, and Imani Henry does amazing amazing work um, and also was really Imani was really formative in m- like my thinking of how I actually could or should be involved in organizing efforts at all. What is that? Uh, Cause I just, I, I really showed up with like, I don't know if I would call it like a savior complex, but like very like white girl liberal moment of like, I just want to help, you know? And what he said to me was like, that doesn't last. If you show up to help, you don't have a personal connection With the work you don't actually you're not implicated you're not you know there's no accountability there in showing up to help you need to find how these structures also affect you and how you're a part of them Mm -hmm. and figure out what to do about that and until you have that you're just gonna stick around for as long as it's convenient what did that look like for you um it looked like i mean this remains attention to me to this day in in a lot of stuff in activist stuff in art stuff but it looked like learning how things actually function if bureaucracy is what is affecting someone what are the forms what are the laws what does the bureaucracy actually do and how can you move on that in a way that um does you know damage control or harm reduction to a degree for immediate situations of violence or displacement or things like that but then also how on a on a broader level in activism do we work to not reinforce those structures because ultimately at least what i'm trying to do is not work on legislation I'm not trying to appeal to Congress or the Senate or local, you know, people to say, oh, we need to change the law to make health insurance or landlords or whoever do this thing. It needs to be about delegitimizing those systems because they're actually the ones that perpetuate that violence and that Mm. give landlords and other people the legitimacy to exploit people in the way that they do. Mm. So it's, yeah, I mean, you need, you need both and more for Mm. sure. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a constant balancing act of that, of learning, learning laws, learning how to actually like get systems of power to work in your favor or, or manipulate them to get what you or other people need. And then at the same time, really creating community structures and resistance movements that are not only outside of that, but not dependent on or reactionary towards that at all. Um, but it was also funny because I'm like, I'm, I was doing these things. I was showing up to like multiple trans organizing efforts. I was going to organizing meetings with uh, star, which uh, Mariah Lopez kind of re-upped after Sylvia Rivera, her gay mother passed away. Um, So, you know, I was doing all these things, but very much within the lens of like, oh, I just, I want to (laughs) help, you know, I'm just an ally, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I'd show up in like cute, like whatever, like femme boy drag and, you know, it was what it was. Uh, Meanwhile, I think like what my, my perception of my body and what that could mean in the world, I had always just kind of ridden on, like, basically a very gender essentialist tip of, like, yeah, I, you know, I was, I was born the way I am, and, like, that's fine, you know, I'll just, like, ride this out, and I know what I am, and I don't need to justify that or tell that to anybody else, or, like, make them believe that it's real which actually I've come full circle back around to now but in a very different way what's Um, the difference because then it was like I I had given in in a way I had surrendered to this notion that like well I'm never going to actually be able to change this in a way that would be meaningful to me or anyone else so I'm just you know here biding my time or whatever and then while I was working with with NITEG and Star and all these things, you know, whispers started coming around that Medicaid was now covering gender affirming surgery. Mm. Um, and I think this may have even been like a little bit before Cuomo actually put out the the word that it was mandatory. Um, Which what year was that? Oh God, uh, I I want to say twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. I yeah I forget, but. And um, that was also a, a cumulative process that took a long time because once he made that mandate, then it was a matter of figuring out how to enforce it. At first, insurance companies were only covering bottom surgery, then gradually it became breast aug. And then it was continual lobbying efforts where people were pushing back and providing all of this documentation on why gender-affirming surgery is a, a necessary means of reducing violence against trans bodies. Um, and so like there, I have, because I was also... You know, by the time that happened, I was pushing to get surgery. So I have multiple drafts of that legislation as it changed and the subtle language changes that were happening. then. And again, this is, you know, manipulating these systems to work to my advantage. In reality, I wanted them so that when I had to start doing sex work again, I would be a more successful hooker. But <laughs> I had to go and be like, I need these because I'm going to die. You have to help me. Which also could have been true. But even you know, statistically, the likelihood of me as like a white person moving in public spaces was like not that great that I would get hate crimed in New York. You know, like I don't know. But uh, yeah, I I hadn't I hadn't codified it that way to myself for the longest time was holding out holding out and it got to the point where I was filtering it into other things like I was filtering it into like an art project where it's like oh I'm gonna like come out with like some of this music that I've been working on and then like part of the art project will be that like after I release it and do all these crazy shows I'm gonna like Blow up the statue of J. Marion Sims in Central Park, and then I'm going to jump off a bridge, and either like die or fake my death and disappear, <laughs> you know, or like it was like things like that. Like, what could I do that would like actually make this like a revolutionary political action or something? And I, you know, again, like really just like kind of silly shit, but it was it was a justification for things that I felt that I couldn't do mm. at the time. Um, and just wildly overcompensating. Mm. And so at a, at a certain point I went to my doctor at Callan Lord and I, she's to this day, like one of the best doctors I've ever had. She's since left the practice to go become like a yoga prat- practitioner or something. <laughs> but, um, I went to her and I told her like, I want a prescription for estrogen. Didn't say I'm trans. Didn't say, you know, I'm going to die. I was just like, I, I want drugs. And she was like, Oh, okay, uh, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. I just need to like see about some shit. And so, you know, she gave me all the disclosures and forms and whatever. And then, you know, gave me the prescription. Um, it was for pills, not injectables. And I had them and I held on to them and I would take one every like couple weeks or something. Just like, Oh, you know, like this is so cute. Um, But, yeah, meanwhile, was, like, waist training and doing other kind of, like, subtle body mods. Because I really, like, the fantasy, and I think, like, many people's fantasy is, like, to just, like, Caitlyn Jenner, the shit. And just pop out one day, like, bitch, I'm fab. You know, like, this is is who I am. Um, And I really had convinced myself, like, even in, like, starting to plan, like, how this was going to work, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep being a really successful faggot hooker and... Just like work away, work away, save up my money, keep coining, paying off my bills in advance and do all the subtle body mods. And then all of a sudden I'm going to get the last surgeries that'll really give it away, you know? And then just having no fucking clue how any of that shit like actually worked. It was all, that was the problem, I think. And again, going back to this thing of like, you have to find how you're actually a part of a situation. It was like, it's too easy like moving through the world as like a white dude to just look at everything as an idea or a thought experiment and be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to like try this thing. And then like, whatever. And like, I, uh, in the course of doing all this, I fell in love Mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, lost my goddamn mind. Uh, I like, doubled down on working made more money than I've ever made in my whole life before or since to um support the art projects that this person wanted to do and we were just like collaborating on this thing we started a performance troupe together we signed on to a lease on a loft with like two other people and we're like hosting rehearsals there um I had wanted to make it like a like a community organizing space I was like, let's have like a radical library and like free childcare and all this shit and of course, as soon as the lease was signed, then they were like, no, we're not going to do all that. We just want to have our like Bushwick performance troupe and, you know, that sucked. But um, yeah, I like the person that I fell for was uh, very hetero in that way, you know. In what way? It was just like really into cis women exclusively. It was like a total pussy maniac. Loved to, like, eat girls out on their period and not, like, have them, like, squirt all over his face and all the things. I'm like, I would love to be that girl for you. I think that's, like, super hot. But, like, realistically, we'll never be that, given where medical technology is at currently. Nonetheless, it was, like, the catalyst that I needed. And uh, we had, like, a really, like, weird, like, kind of great platonic romance thing that was like it was like a friendship but like we literally like we would take showers together all the time we would cuddle in the same bed every night Mm. um like give each other massages be naked around each other it was like literally everything but sex Mm. but this person also very much knew that and had like been crashing around with people and like kind of like was very conventionally attractive and had been fucking people for a place to stay for a long time and so you know i think we related on that level (laughs) but um yeah i don't know we we had this thing and i was just like wow like okay you want pussy like i'm going to give you all of the pussy you can handle and i started moaning the night after we cuddled for the first time do you know what date that was uh fuck i like either september or october twenty sixth of 2015 like end of 2015 um it was like you know it it was a whirlwind (laughs) we like did this fucking play at the french embassy and then like got the loft and we're starting this thing and like i was like crazy for him i fucking got a flight for both of us to go to la and like record a music video for his music project like an eight and a half hour layover in vegas on the way back so we could like candy flip and like you know it was just like it was fun I, it was this fantasy that I was giving myself that maybe someday I could be the kind of person that he would want, which was was never the case. But, um, you know, and the more we talked about it, he, he, you know, he was very much like a sadist philosophy, bro. Um, and I think at the time I, I knew that and I wanted it. I wanted to experience what it would be like to be hurt as a femme mm. like by like a, of like a man you know like I wanted I wanted to know pain in that way very specifically and was like seeking that out um but yeah the more we talked about it the more he just was like very openly like not yeah like didn't didn't view like, trans identity as like a legitimate thing and was like yeah you know when when you grow when you grow breasts from hormones they're like not like breasts they're like male hormone breasts like you know shit like that just like wow you know like I will clearly never be like a person to you in that way um but yeah that went on for a while then him and the other two people that were on the lease kind of like split over creative differences and they pieced out one by one and I uh the the week that it actually happened that everybody left, I had like three or four clients booked. At this point I was working as a dude and as a trainee. Like it was like a whole situation where I had ads up on Rentman, um, and ads up on like arrows and was just like whoever called, I would throw on that look and dash out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and I was literally, like, shooting ho-picks for, like, both genders at the same time and just, like, you know, pulling my hair back for one. And, like, it was a whole scenario. But, um, yeah, I, I really thought that I was going to be able to just, like, cover the cost of, of this $2,000 a month loft. Because I had been making, like, more money than ever before. I was like, wow, I can do this. Anything is possible. You know, and I think also I this is a thing that I've realized about myself, just as like a, a very codependent person that um, being in love makes things possible for me that I would never be able to do otherwise. I just wouldn't have the motivation or anything, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I I like went in trying to make the money, but that weekend all of those clients canceled, so then I was already a month behind was consistently a month behind for about six months. And finally the landlord just asked me to break the lease and leave. And I did, at which point I moved into Scumquat. Um, but you know, and then sued Medicaid three times, got my face covered, had to leave Scumquat, um, moved in with this girl and then went to LA and got stung by the police. Um, had to stay in LA for like a month and a half waiting for court. And, um, then like came back, was still homeless at this point. The place I was supposed to move after recovering from facial femme had fallen through. Um, and yeah, I, um, I was just crashing around. I was kind of traveling around the country looking, like just crashing on friends' couches. I went to New Orleans briefly. I went to Atlanta, Richmond, Pittsburgh, Toronto, LA, Um, and in the course of that, while all of that was happening, um, FOSTA-SESTA happened like months after I got stung. Um, and you know, Backpage went down, which was mostly where I was tricking off of at this point. So, um, yeah. So at that point it was like, I didn't have a website and a lot of the infrastructure that would have enabled me to keep doing sex work and modulate how I did it while FOSTA-SESTA went down. I had been advertising exclusively on third-party ad boards. So when it happened, I kept going for a while off of regulars, but it just, it wasn't sustainable as a way to make a living anymore. And it definitely wasn't going to enable me to, like, get a house or any kind of place to stay. Um, So I, uh, in August... Of last year, it's been a little over a year now, um, in August of 2018, um, a room opened up at a friend's place. And um, I was hesitant at first because all of my shit was still in storage and I was paying money every month. And I had had a ton of shit, like, especially when we had the loft, we had gotten all of these art supplies to make this shit happen. And when I left, I didn't want to get rid of them because it's like, why would I? get rid of this thing that's super useful that I would just have to go and get again eventually. So I threw it all into storage, which I was like, you know, tricking or doing whatever to pay off each month. Um, and I was looking for a bigger room to try and hold it all and just couldn't afford one over and over and over. So I finally took this smaller room and then had, had housing all of a sudden um, and got this job at gallery and then like also like I've been doing like freelance art fabrication for a while where I kind of like make artists work for or with them depending on the situation um so I you know a few gigs came along with that that I was doing on the side and it's just like somehow I've been lucky enough to like barely sustain myself for the last year or so and like just keep my bills covered pay them a little late each month and that's that um but yeah it's been strange i i had been doing like full-time full-service sex work since i was 17 years old and there's a lot that comes with that you know and it's i think we all know like there's a lot of emotional territory and there's a lot of just logistic, like moving around, having a lot of chaos in your life and being able to modulate it. Um, Being being able to like stand over your fear, you know? Like you have to get over the like, am I going to make rent this month spiral real quick? Because you'll do it every month if you let yourself. But eventually you just get to this point of like, it's fine, it'll be fine. The money will come. And you figure out a way and yeah, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of traumatizing shit that happens with that a lot where like you really do find a way, but sometimes that way is like kind of wild. And so once I had housing and a day job, I really, um, there was a huge part of me that pushed against it and I don't know. I think some people looking at that would be inclined to call it self-sabotage. But I think it's this realistic acknowledgement, again, that, like, most of us are constantly on the edge of this chaos that we all pretend isn't there. Because we all want to be fine and happy and whatever, you know, not be lonely, not be imminently facing death and our own mortality. (laughs) You know, all these, like, existential things. And um, I, I don't know. I've always just been really in touch with that. I would rather just acknowledge the thing for what it is like move forward from that point and so in the midst of this conditional stability of this you know this lease on this place that i'm not on that is going to end in april and these jobs where i have to show up and be like a, not you know like it's it's an art gallery so you can be kind of wild but like you you have to keep it cute you have to be a little polished and you know be the kind of radical if you are that at all that fits within the art world and you know which is kind of easy because every again everything is an idea because the art world is wildly white supremacist and genocidal so then you know you can like you can talk about anything you can talk about abolishing prisons and doing all of these things but then like no money goes towards that really it's just it's representation you're talking about it and everybody anything is an idea that can be talked about if it's not being acted on but like god forbid you interrupt someone's gala or their brunch or, you know, whatever. Um, So yeah, I just, a a huge part of me didn't know what to do with that new context. But then there was also a part of me that of course was like living for it. It was like, wow, I'm like, I'm already an incredibly domestic person. I love to cook. I love to sew. Like, I, you know, like I love all of this shit. And so it was like, it was nice to actually have that but at the same time like I, I was still and am still you know from time to time like working off of regulars that call me from when I was advertising but it as it became less frequent it was also really wild to navigate like what sex even looked like for me recreationally, you know, outside of a professional context, since I still, to this day, relate to most things in life through the filter of sex work. Mm -hmm. My professional context with people, my social context with people, my financial, emotional, everything has deep, inextricable ties to sex work. So trying to figure out what intimate relationships and sexual expression or sensual expression, any of it meant to me outside of work was a huge thing you know like I, I started seeing someone recently and had the capability for the first time to decide to be monogamous with them which i did it was like you know it was, we we were open there was an understanding all along that we could fuck whoever we wanted at any given time but like i decided pretty early on like i don't want to i actually really like having this thing and having something really special and caring with someone where we like each other and I'm not really trying to put my energy into anybody else. Um, Was that like a, did that seem like a a conflict with other times and places you had been in your life? Yeah, when I was doing sex work, I only ever dated other sex workers. Uh, Yeah, I would never date a civilian doing sex work. not just because it's complicated, but because by and large, like most people who have not lived that life, at least at some point, don't know how to deal with it. There's this fucked paradigm in the same way that we have this fucking worship now of like men who come out as trans amorous. It's like, oh, how courageous or like generous of you to throw the dick my way. You know, it's <laughs> fucked. It's awful. Uh, but And it's, it's total bullshit that is deeply misogynist and places the focus on men and this very heteronormative way of being Mm -hmm. um and it overlooks like this fundamental contradiction that prostitution and sex work places to heteronormative society Mm -hmm. you know if everything is structured around the family and this unit of Mm -hmm. reproduction how do sex workers play a role in reproducing society and how are they a fundamental part of society um and i think that requires i mean just you know on for hours but like it requires a lot of looking at like what social structures actually mean and what about sex has been repressed and denied in in ourselves like sex workers fulfill a definite need in society mm. um which is an interesting thing because we get framed as radical or like anti-society in this way a lot of the time and it is really not the case hookers are as capitalist as anything but um yeah i i i had only ever dated other sex workers while i was doing it and i had been doing it since i was 17 so it was like it was weird to have that with somebody but yeah it's it's been weird this past year there's there's been that layer of like having very conditional stability kind of hating it kind of loving it going into it but then also pushing back against it in these very erratic impetuous ways um my my drug use has uh spiraled wildly out of control at times it's probably the first time in my life where i was doing things that i couldn't just walk away from at any given point and say oh i don't need that i'm gonna be sober now um yeah there's there's that it's but it's also i think been uh partially because I had the capacity to actually being housed and not constantly like trying not to die, but also just from, um, my best friend who, who, you know, allowed me this space that I'm in and who got, you know, who was living there when I moved in. Um, and yeah, they, they've taught me like, I would say most of what I know about, about like activism and just about being like a not shitty person in the world um and like living with them and working in really close capacity with them has been um it's changed everything i think especially this past year i really i feel like i learned what it meant to live for another person in the world where every day when you wake up that they're also a part of your life you think like are they okay how are they doing how could i make their world a better place to be and that also being a really difficult thing because you don't you don't get it right a lot of the time you fuck it up and yeah trying to move through that but um yeah, I don't know. I think, like, the tension really reached a breaking point within the last couple weeks in this way where um, I, I, I've I been scamming Xanax for a while. <laughs> I, I had a bunch of friends who had, you know, severe rapid-onset anxiety. Not get a script because it's so controlled. So, being the healthcare wizard that I am, I said, I'm gonna get a Xanax script. I don't even like benzos, but I'm just gonna give it away to my friends. Um, so I did. Um, but part of the condition of that was going into therapy, which I hadn't been in for years. I willfully left like any kind of psychiatric care as soon as I was not a ward of the state anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I hadn't been back to therapy since. And so that, that's been weird. But it's, yeah, it's been interesting to, like, go back into that context consensually and not have it forced on me in such an aggressive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, to go somewhere and talk about shit once every week or two. Um, so, like, I've been doing that. But I think kind of the uh, emotional collateral that I, like, held over myself with this kind of tension that I was feeling about this new context that I found myself in in the last year was that when it wasn't working out when I wasn't making enough money when things with the person I was seeing weren't going well or just like I just I want to say fuck it like I just want to spiral and like burn it all down and I like, don't care like blah la, and like using my old life as some kind of like word I mean my old life as like But like using where I had been as like a worst case scenario of like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to go back to sex work as if that was like a bad thing. And I had not actually made way more money doing that than I make currently, (laughs) you know, but it's like in that context, and this is why I hate therapy. It's like they're bound by the limits of the law and of society. So inherently when I entered therapy, the way that I even got Xanax was having this like pseudo fucking like meltdown freakout moment of like I just I have anxiety and it got so severe that I like shot up meth and heroin within a couple days of each other and like the heroin tested positive for fentanyl and I did it anyway. Like, oh help me you know and like they're like, oh wow, we should probably just give you Xana you know like it luckily I found a place that does harm reduction. Blah blah blah. But it it was this thing of like because that was how I had presented to them an intake, the context of therapy that I entered was as substance abuse counseling. So then I have to go in and justify my substance use to this person once every week or two and talk about how, you know, what my responses to trauma are, and how that ties into sex work, but then in the process of doing all that, it's like, I am then justifying sex work as kind of a net negative in my life, and how that tied into drug use, and, like, you can't explain to someone that you've, like, been sexually assaulted so many times that it has become a mundane experience without them being, like, baseline kind of concerned for you, but, like, It's also difficult to have a conversation about how rape culture is everywhere. And if more people acknowledged it, we might be in a better place than we are now, instead of pretending it's some wild exception to the rule. But yeah, I, I think like therapy also played a part in kind of swinging how I felt about where I was at from a tension between these ways of being and knowing myself to feeling like I had to be accountable to someone who really didn't know me or my life at all. Okay, um, we're back again okay. after a little bit of a bureaucratic mix-up here at NYU. Um, so where take us back to where we were. That projector is Hitachi. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so you were talking about yeah. a place in your life in which you're um, that you are redistributing your resources? I don't know mentally. if I would call it that. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call it? I mean, it I don't know. It just has a, a like very specific feel to it. I think that um, so much of the experience of being... You know, whatever, whatever fucking, like, patronizing term you want to call it, like, working class, or marginalized, or, like, any, any of the bullshit. It's, like, so much of it is about being in a triage state where you're constantly running around putting out fires, and there's always more work to be done than you have the time or capacity to do, you know? And so when... Especially, you know, towards the end when I was, like, tricking off Backpage and Foster Sesta was happening and all of this and I didn't have a house. It was, like, it was just always about getting what I needed for that week or doing what had to happen to stay alive, um, you know, and then apologizing for being such a mess and promising I'd have more money soon and then not having more money soon, and you know. Um, but yeah there's there's a predictability that comes with having a day job where even if you don't have enough, you have enough time sometimes and definitely like enough mental space to focus on things beyond your immediate survival needs and i think that's a lot of like the neuroses kind of of our contemporary moment is that like as busy and overwhelmed and overstimulated and like bombarded with information as we are there is so much time also that all we have to sit with are our own thoughts and so a lot of the like um more, like, self-destructive responses or whatever that people have, I, I think are often, like, having to sit with themselves and distinctly not wanting to or, ha- you know, not being able to sit with the fact that, like, all they have is their complicity in these structures. And I've definitely, like, had a lot of that um in the past year. But it's also been this thing of, like, okay, now I – will actually be in one place long enough to book a psychiatry appointment, show up for it, get a prescription, and regularly attend therapy. That is a thing that I can now do because I have a place to sleep every night and shower and cook meals, and you know, all of that. Um, like, just a home base changes so much. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I don't really... I think that a lot of the times when I have conversations about organizing or community support or, or activism with people, there's this knee-jerk response on their part that what I'm doing is somehow exceptional or you know pr- profound in this way. And I don't think that it can be that. In the same way that when I started, I was like, oh, I want to help. It's like, no, you don't get to help. You don't get to be not a part of the situation and step in for it for you in a way that affirms you. It's not about that, I think. I I think a lot of what really needs to happen... In terms of like housing people, supporting incarcerated people, showing up for addicts and making sure that, you know, people aren't just isolated and dying in many senses, whether or not that has to do with drugs. Like those kinds of things need to be a baseline for being a person in the world. In the same way that now, what what are the baselines we have? You need to be self sufficient and independent and cover your rent, and you know, like those are all capitalist markers. They're all about isolation and doing things yourself on your own. And it just it doesn't work. It creates that isolation. Where at the end of the day, you go and have to sit at home alone in your you know tiny cube of a New York room and hate yourself because you're lonely. And nothing that you've done in your life has connected you to other people and you don't know how to anymore because everything feels fake and digital or, you know, whatever the fuck that context is. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that the things that we're taught are like the limits of what we can do are actually right where we need to be working. You know, when we sit, like people now are talking about prison reform, bail reform, you know, maybe abolition someday. It's like, no, that, that should be the conversation. Now we need more people that are pushing for that kind of radical work. There was just a meeting in uh, Delaware County about ending uh bail and, and pre trial detention. Um, which we know disproportionately affects, you know, marginalized communities, poor people, people of color. Uh, And so all of these officials are pushing back against that and using these extreme examples of like, oh, you say it's for nonviolent offenses, but like, where's the line? And everybody, when you talk about prison reform, it's like, well, what about violent crimes? What about rapists? And I don't know, I think it's like, yeah, what about them? Do you you honestly believe that sending someone to jail with the assumption that, you know, especially in our society, which very much actually condones rape, again, with this notion of rape culture actually being everywhere and people not wanting to talk about how endemic it is to the foundations of our society, if we really look at how rape is treated judicially, legislatively, all of these things, socially, sending someone who is a rapist or who has raped somebody to jail for any length of time, do we believe that's going to make the situation better? Do we believe sending a violent person to jail is going to make them less violent? Absolutely not. So, you know, just things like that. Or, like, with uh, with drug shit. Like, there, there's a needle exchange truck um, that was, for a while... Um, up the street from the place where I stay on a regular basis, uh, it was done through Washington Heights Corner Project, and they offered you know testing needles all the all the things to people in the neighborhood who needed them. People literally showed up there with signs and protested them. Signs that said "We love you, but not here." Like where where the fuck are people supposed to go? You know that that's the thing, and it's like. I think part of that has been the degree to which, like, my commitment personally to that has become really intense has been a personal matter. It's the fact that, like, I actually started using needles relatively recently, and, you know, that has been something that has now become a part of my experience and will probably be so for the rest of my life, even if I don't use them again, because that shit doesn't leave you It's a different kind of drug administration. Like, once you go to needles, you know, it is what it is, but... Um, yeah, really just, like, seeing how much people hate addicts and want them to die. They just, they don't want it anywhere around them. Even someone seeing a syringe outside of their building apparently is cause for them to protest harm reduction services. So, um, yeah, it's just been, like, I. that's why I say, like, I don't think it can be about, like, redistributing resources it's a matter of having an actualized political analysis that isn't about ideology or rhetoric it's about looking at a situation as it stands looking at how things move on the ground who's affected who's subjected to violence who benefits who gets power from those things and then moving accordingly like one of one of the things um that really like it in the last few months just kind of like fucked with me was that while um while like going to appeals for people who had been sentenced to life in prison and like do you know go like seeing all of these things around like people who have faced felonies in New York and been locked up for long periods of time then going to my job at this gallery and during the last series, um, they had a really wonderful show up by um, Hannah Black, who I I love, you know, fantastic artist. Uh, The show was called Beginning End None. And it was about how um, the way that, I guess how loaded um, the analogy of a human cell that people use to a factory is. And how the factory, you know, has connections to prisons and slave labor, and you know, then, you know, the cell being a prison cell also, and you know, like chattel slavery and all of these things. So it was a show tying all of those things together um on like five-screen, you know, video work and seeing at the opening and every day after people coming in and watching this show and, and feel moved. It's like, wow, that was It's really incredible. (laughs) And then they go home and, you know, maybe tell someone about it and go on with their lives. No commissary got sent to anyone. No one got bailed out. No one packed a court for anyone's trial. No one was a pen pal for a prisoner. There was no material, tangible action that did anything for people who were actually incarcerated. And I think that that's a thing that artists really like don't do a lot of the time. I, there's, because the way that art is formulated is so much about authorship and biography and who is the artist, the myth of the author and the conceptual master kind of moves everything. And, you know, that's why when Basquiat died, they can jack up the prices of his work so many times because, oh, he was such a a genius. There will never be another. And I mean, you know, he was great. I'm sure there will never be another. But the fact that so much of the onus of brilliance and exceptionalism is placed on people who are making things means that you don't in that context, get to just be a person who acts in a necessary way. Even if an artist were to do something like bailing a bunch of people out, it then becomes this huge you know, art experiment. And everyone looks at it and says, oh, I wish I could do that, but I didn't go to art school or my family didn't have money, so I can't do something meaningful. And I I really think it has to become a more generalized thing where even if you don't have resources, quote unquote, if you don't have the things that we're told we have to have to organize or change things in the world, quote unquote, you know, even with the understanding that like, no one is going to save the world or like this country from being what it is, you can still connect with other people and do things in a very direct way. And I think, like, that the older I get, the more I'm kind of, like, forced to come to terms with that. Um, Like, gender shit was a huge part of that, you know? So much at first was about maintaining a critical distance and being able to look at who I was and what my embodiment meant from the vantage point of an art project or, you know, a social experiment. And then once I was actually in it, it's like, no, this takes time and you change slowly and you have to live with other people who don't understand who you are, what you're doing, what you care about, what means things to you. And that, you know, I ultimately, and this is what I was saying about coming back to the point where I'm done explaining that like, I'm real quote unquote to anybody is like, I just don't anymore. If people aren't there, then they're not there. What I've already done and the body mods that I've undertaken are me being nice it's making myself legible in a way that people can work with and understand without us having to have a whole conversation about it. As as sad and as misogynistic as it is, I can show up in a short skirt, you know, with my, my brand new C cup and people understand, oh, you're a woman or something, you know, and it's like then, then at least I don't have to go, I don't even have to go into a whole, I, you know, non binary and gender isn't real and all that because already I am not real to them. I'm some kind of a freak. But because I did all of these body mods, I now at least have pushed that a little further where they get that I'm a freak, you know? <laughs> so, it's, you know, there's that. It's, but all of these things are like these kind of like deeply embodied, durational things where like you, there's no way in it but to be it. And I think a lot of the times, I not even think I know a lot of the times the language that we use around uh, like existing with each other not even as like a mutual aid or a supportive thing like just around like being on the fucking planet with each other the language that we use is so patronizing and so deeply reinforcing of these entrenched systems of power where when we talk about prisons or we talk about police violence or like the ravages of capitalism it's always in this kind of condescending way for a lot of people especially for white people but like you know it's it's in this way where everybody that is not directly a primary beneficiary of power gets othered and all the language is about how sad that situation is and how inevitable it is and how power oh god it, you know we can't change it it's just oh you poor target of violence you know it's, it's really violent in its own way because the language then forms our reality and it's not to say that those things don't happen but if all we ever look at the situation as is trying to quote unquote help people who have been subjected to violence then there's no there's no connection there it's just pity or charity or you know however we want to look at that like i and it's you know it's the same thing with with addiction stuff i think when people look at people who are homeless and people who are dealing with drug addiction it's like maybe you show up to a soup kitchen you know, once or twice a month and you give out food and you tell yourself you did what you could. But, like, I don't know. Again, like, I'm a super codependent person, but I think a lot of that is, for me, about looking at the world and seeing what's needed. I think that, like, the things that we're taught about, like, boundaries and what it means to preserve this kind of delineation around a a selfhood, that's kind of like a territory of identity in this way like it doesn't it doesn't work people die when when you do that like if you really like showing up for people who don't have housing ultimately a lot of the time means being their housing if you are not personally willing to offer your couch or your bed or your floor, like your kitchen, literally whatever the fuck you have to someone that needs a place to lie down indoors and sleep for the night on a New York winter or wherever the hell else you might be, then you have abdicated responsibility for their homelessness. At a certain point, you draw the line, and you say, well, I can't. And a lot of people do, people do it all the time. I would say most of us draw those lines every day. We pass a homeless person that's asking for money, and we don't give it to them. Sometimes we don't have it. Sometimes we do, and we want to save it for lunch or coffee or whatever. But like, there's always those lines. And I think like it's it's the same thing for addiction. Like, okay, like we can go and like get Narcan training in theory, and like have a kit lying around somewhere. But like, are you carrying it on you at all times? Do you have clean points for someone that is injecting on a regular basis? You know, do your friends even feel comfortable enough to tell you that they're doing that? That was a huge realization for me. I had people that had been in my life for years, like that I had known for many years, and it was only after I started shooting up that people slowly came to me, and not even came to me, it wasn't like some confessional, it was like we would be talking, and they would bring it up in conversation. You know, like I got high the other night, or like I pointed or whatever, and like, people don't say it because they have a justifiable fear that they will lose their livelihood. They'll lose their housing, like any of these things. You can literally legally lose everything just for being a drug user, especially an IV drug user. Like we hate addicts in this society. And so it's like, what does, what really showing up for that means I think is not only being vocal about supporting people of that life experience, but taking material steps to be a force of harm reduction in the world. And that, I mean, that can go really far to the point of like, okay, like I'm going to pick up and have it on hand. So, you know, someone doesn't have to turn a trick to get the shit because I'm their friend and they care about, you know, but it's like, I think that there's also uh there's a huge impulse in society towards sanitation. We're very scared of getting our hands dirty. Everything is supposed to be clean and neat and black and white, and it's not. This is, you know, again, like the chaos that we're all so close to. <laughs> you know, no one wants to be. Everybody wants to kind of just be fine and have an answer, like a singular answer, a singular self at the end of the day that they can sit with and say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and this is how life is. And,. I think that when when you relinquish that, it can be a lot harder to figure out how to proceed through a situation, but I think it's also a lot more honest of a position to operate from, you know? Because the I think the underlying assumption with a lot of those things is, like, I am not going to house this homeless person because what if they have some kind of psychological issues, or they're violent, or they rob me. If I put myself in this position of vulnerability, I could stand to lose things. I could lose everything. This person might burn down my place. I might get in trouble with my landlord and get kicked out. If I pick up for someone that's shooting up, what if I start doing it? What if I become an addict? And the reality of those things is like, yes, anybody could become homeless anybody could become an addict these are all possibilities and the thing that stops you from doing that is nothing really it's a choice it's a choice every moment and every day and so yeah the more you isolate yourself from that and just don't engage with it and shove it away and say you know we love you but not here then yeah, you do stand to benefit a lot more from (laughs) capitalism doing that. And it's it's like, I think that like there's in in the art world, in, in society in general, there's this mystification of like, how do you succeed where the path is actually really clear cut? In the art world you go to a pedigreed art school you get an mfa someone usually your parents or you know some other private source of wealth funds your studio practice you get gallery representation and then you know show at group shows a solo show art fairs biennials like that is there is an established trajectory there that is mostly effective even after the art school bubble you know collapsed if you monitor the art field and you like you know what you're doing within your particular discipline You go and get your, you know, Whitney internship or your Sotheby's internship or whatever. Like it, it's relatively clear cut and you either make it or you don't. And if you have the money to fund your own survival until you make it, the odds that you will make it are greater. And it's, yeah, it's the same thing in society. It's like you go, you get some kind of, you know, career within a field that is growing Like, you know, for a while it was programming. I feel like that's kind of on the downward spiral now. A lot of people that learned programming are like not necessarily getting jobs. But it's like, you know, you get a job in a field that has growth potential. You make a bunch of money, you disregard the ethical implications, and then you have your shit taken care of. And it's like, you can do that. I think like, obviously not everybody has access to that. But like, if you do, then you have a choice to make. And I think most people, given the choice, would choose to, quote unquote, succeed. But then when we talk about, you know, capitalism is bad, then like, what does that really mean? If at the end of the day, we're still choosing to succeed, we're still choosing to succeed within capitalism and benefit from it, instead of saying, none of this is legitimate. None of this is real. I'm actually going to build a life on fighting this as much as I can without just, like, dying right now because I blew up a bank or, you know, a government building or something, you know? Like, I think that was now why I look back on, like, the whole art project of, like, oh, I'm going to, like, blow up that statue of J. Marion Sims. Like, it was silly not because you shouldn't blow things up, but because a statue doesn't really do anything. And this, you know, not to be like, I'm a trendsetter, but, like, this was before the whole moment of, like, all of the statues getting, like, taken down uh, in mass of, like, confederate heroes and whatever. It was, like, it was this thing of, like, I'm going to target this because it is, is a symbolic gesture. But ultimately, symbolic gestures don't do much, you know? So it's, like, you can have this big thing, but, again, that kind of work is more about affirming your own capacity as an actor in a situation versus actually helping anybody else. And so, um, yeah, I think that like, (sighs) it's, it's tough to find a way to commit to these things that doesn't very quickly lead to burning out. Because when you actually stand in the way of something that's like supposed to happen, so to speak, then you're not successful. Everything will move against you doing that thing. And that's kind of how you know that what you're doing is working. It's like, you know, if if you're if your organization or your effort is getting interviews and and TV shows and a nonprofit organization with a staff and a budget, then like there's, you're probably not challenging a lot of people Mm -hmm. in that moment, you know? And so and it's hard too, because so much of, so much of those histories get erased. We don't hear about them. They don't get media coverage because you can't, they're not convenient to propaganda. And so, but, sorry, yeah, there, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of the, a lot of the really radical organizing that's happened has been erased, um, I've, uh, I don't think it's, like, a singular entity. I don't think it's, like, a them in that way. I think that, like, the, there are kinds of overarching trends that are set up by market patterns and systems of production. So the way that media works is based on types of engagement that are profitable. So if a certain kind of messaging isn't profitable, then it just doesn't happen. And yes, there are CEOs and actual people at certain points that are like, you know, kill this story or like, fund this kind of, you know, production. But I don't think that like the, that all of it can be placed on any one person. I I think that like, it's also about uh, tropes and things that are convenient to believe. Um, I've, I've spoken to like white friends and people that I knew in college who still believe that the Black Panthers were a terrorist organization. We don't talk much anymore. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, like even in the the article that Michelle wrote, the like junkie communism, thing like, she's like talking about how the young lords like took over hospitals and like had these, you know, like needle exchange and like harm reduction efforts that were completely community organized. You know, we don't hear about that. We don't hear about these movements and, and, you know, community organizing outside of and against legal boundaries. We hear about how those people were criminals or terrorists or things like that. And it's it always gets it gets branded that. And again, there's, a, you know, so much respectability politics is about not wanting to end up on that side of history you want to end up on the right side of history which is not just not endorsing fascists it's not endorsing leftists or radicals or insurrectionaries or anybody else whose message is not palpable for mass mobilization and like I don't know I don't know where we really got that I think there's kind of this like anti-boomer sentiment that like maybe it used to be like that in the 60s but it isn't now and it's like it wasn't really like that in the 60s either. Like I think the only analog we have for that is maybe like when photographs of Vietnam got circulated there was massive discontent in the American public because people were uncomfortable with the violence that was being done in their name. But Even that, it's like, was mass mobilization what stopped that? No. Like, I think that's a capitalist modality, this notion that you have to have a hundred or a thousand or a million people on your side in order for the work that you're doing to be done. It's like, no, actually, if you're really doing it, the fewer people know about it, the better. So some final thoughts on on what you want to see in terms of mobilization and... and the world around you? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most important things that we can do right now um, is look at how things actually function and what forces move them. And I think across the board, we're, we're starting to see this, really. Like in the uprisings in Chile, people are like, no, these are the ways that we have been systemically disenfranchised and fucked over. And so there's unrest in the streets around that specifically, even here in New York. You know, there was the in at the Whitney, there was this pushback against a board member owning a company that manufactured tear gas that was used in multiple suppressions of people's uprising you know and so then it's like we look at like this is a driving force and that money moves the world that we exist in so then we're going to fight that versus like let's make an art piece representing it that actually does nothing so i i think that really really looking at the function of things following the money following the laws that enable things to happen um i think right now even even in a lot of activists and radical circles there's a lot of uh marches and kind of direct actions that are done with this notion that somehow mobilizing and being in the streets in and of itself is enough or if it's not enough that it is uh it's strong enough of a gesture that it will do something eventually when in actuality we have long been uh logistically, like, outstrategized, outmaneuvered, outmanned by highly militarized police forces. So any time that we step into the streets, we are surveilled. People are then targeted afterwards. Organizers are arrested. You know, it's like all of, all of these things happen by being in public spaces. So again, if we have this notion of mass mobilization being what works, how does it actually work? What is it doing when we go and walk through the streets. I mean, you know, there's this notion of awareness or spreading a message, but ultimately like, like the last one that I went to was for Leline Polanco after after she died, you know, like went to the streets for that one of like, fuck it. If, even if it does nothing, like I have to do something right now because I'm losing my mind. And I think that is what drives it a lot of time. There's anger there and just needing to to be together with people that are feeling the same way. Which is completely the, the legitimate, but like as a strategy, we're it's a it's a feedback loop. We keep going into the streets for this anger that keeps happening because the root causes are not changing. Um, and yeah, I think like moving on those things in and of themselves is really important. Following the money, looking at where funding comes from, and not taking it. I think especially in the art world, but also in the nonprofit world, there's the tendency to know how things are fucked, know that money is coming from deeply unethical and violent sources, and then take it anyway. You know, the shed that just opened up in Hudson Yards, like so many, every time they curate the, you know, young artists that are emerging and that everybody wants to see, And no matter what protest is supposed to happen, as soon as they curate them in, everybody goes and sees it and supports their friends. And it's like, we have to stop going. We need to stop showing work at these places. Critics need to stop writing about biennials and all these stupid ass things as if they will somehow be delegitimized by not writing about this thing that they feel they have to acknowledge. If we all just said, fuck this thing, it's pointless and violent and we can do better then we'd be a lot farther along than trying to reform it based on whatever terms we can drag up yeah. but i again i don't think people are willing to do that they want to talk about reform rather than abolition and and take the intermediate steps that they feel they can win yeah. and in the meantime you know there there are expenses to that people die people lose their livelihoods people lose their homes they lose their loved ones So we're about out of time. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel you didn't have an opportunity to say Um, for this session? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess I came into it thinking that, yeah, I would be talking more about this kind of like, like ideological, like super structure or whatever kind of stuff. And I guess in a way, I'm glad that like I talked about just random shit in my life at the end of the day because i think that's that is maybe the biggest part of it is that like the things that i do and that i hold really important i they they can't be exceptional things like what whatever context i exist within in a given moment as an artist as an activist whatever I don't think I'm ultimately, like, really any of those things. It's just a convenient handle to, like, get through the moment with less explanation. But I think also, like, even just statistically from the number of people that are engaged in those things, like, there's an inclination to say, oh, you're so special for doing this, or, "Oh, like, it's amazing that you decided to do this thing. It's like, no, more more people need to do that as an everyday thing, like, if you want to get involved with prison organizing, find someone, be their pen pal. There's Black and Pink, there's QDEP, there's F2L, there's all of these organizations that directly work with prisoners in various capacities. You can have a relationship with someone and write them and say, what do you need? How can I support you? Do you need someone to reach out to your family? It's like, these are very human things that you do with your friends all the time that you can do that actually have a direct effect. These aren't exceptional things that that only certain people can do. I, I wanna see that. I wanna see that more normalized as people creating alternative structures and saying like, fuck this thing that has kept us isolated from each other for so long. Like, Let's just actually connect with each other in this moment because we can. Yeah. And at that point, I think a lot of those systems become powerless because they depend on your isolation and your dependence on them, and a lack of community, in order to thrive and exploit you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.